Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day from me. Before we get into the message, I wanted to make a, a one quick announcement or kind of a plug. Uh, boy, I, I'll tell you, churches tend to go through things together. There tends to be seasons where, where people go through uh, the same things together. We are a body after all. And I've seen that for the last 20 years, that churches go through things together. And I, when, when I see that, when I identify that, uh, I always try to kind of recommend a resource that, that would be helpful. And so I'd like to recommend a book to you uh, this morning. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's a book called uh, Reforming Marriage by Douglas Wilson. Reforming Marriage by Douglas Wilson. And uh, I want to recommend that to you uh, if you're married, if you're thinking about getting married, if you think you'd like to get married one day. Uh, let me recommend that book to you. I also want to recommend it to you as uh, pre-counseling. So if, if you're to the point where you would, you'd like to sit down with uh, my wife and I and talk about your marriage, we would love to do that with you. But we will actually ask you to read this book before, before we meet. And I'll tell you why that is. It's not to put, put you off. It's actually so that we can create a common vocabulary so that when we come together, we don't have to create that vocabulary during those counseling times. We can have all the issues sort of there. We can use the book as a way to kind of uh, uh, prompt uh, those conversations. So the book's called Reforming Marriage by Douglas Wilson, and I'd recommend it to anyone. I'll tell you, it's, it's not a book that you're necessarily going to love to read. Uh, it's entertaining because it's so darn hard. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, my girls have both read it. They both hated it. And uh, uh, no, they, they appreciated it, but it was a hard book to read. It's a hard message, but a good, encouraging message as well. So I recommend that to you. And, and as I said, if at some point, if you are thinking about that you would like to, to, to have some marriage counseling, you don't have to wait for things to be terrible to do that at all. And I'm happy to do that with you, but I would, I would just, we will ask you to read this book. So you might just want to get it just, just in case. All right. On to the message. Psalm 13. We're back in Psalm 13. How many of you were here last week and heard last week's message? I kind of need to know how much I need to review. Okay. So I'll do a little bit of review. Uh, had a few folks that were, uh, that were not here last week. Um, but first of all, let me just introduce this by talking about Father's Day. Uh, do you remember, men, those of you who are fathers, do you remember the quiet coup d'etat that took place when you became a father? You changed. You changed. No one, no one told you how drastic you would change, but you really did change. You suddenly thought about things differently. Uh, the, the, the holding that baby, maybe even for the first time, your priorities changed. You, the way you looked at the world changed. Things you used to care a great deal about didn't matter as much. My little brother went out and sold his motorcycle like within the first co- couple weeks of holding holding that first kiddo. You know, like like things change just quick, quietly. But you don't. We don't talk about them. We don't necessarily think about them. But it's amazing how things you didn't care about suddenly become important and things you cared about a lot suddenly don't become so important. It's amazing how much the presence of this baby can change your priorities. And friends, one of the reasons that we're talking about the presence of God is because the presence of God changes our priorities. The presence of God sets everything else into perspective. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the message, but... I've in talking with Christians for years and just just listening to their stories, I've come up with the term perspectivitis. Uh, the longer you go without kind of knowing God's presence, the longer you go without being in God's presence, the harder it is to put everything else in this world in perspective. 
And so one of the reasons we're seeking God and seeking his presence is because that is actually going to help us put the rest of this whole life into perspective. It's going to help us create godly biblical priorities. It's actually going to give order and meaning to our entire lives. That's what's going on in Psalm 13. David is utterly dependent on the presence of God. Uh, God commands us to worship him with our whole being, right? He commands us to worship him with our emotions and our bodies and the little hairs on the back of our necks and our adrenal glands and our goosebumps and everything else. God calls us to worship him with everything. And in order to do that, we need to experience God and, and, and know God's manifest presence. David is in a season of life where that's not happening. And rather than grow used to it, which is what many of us have done, he stops and he seeks God. And essentially, the subplot of this psalm is David saying, God, this is no way to live. I don't, I don't want to go on not knowing you, not sensing your presence. I don't want to get used to this. And that's sort of what we're doing in this series. One of the things we're doing in this series is we're sort of reacclimating and remembering, like, it's not normal to go through life not discerning the presence of God, not not sensing the presence of God. It's not healthy. It's not good to go too long without that. And David knows that, so he writes this psalm of lament. And because he knows it's a problem that so many of us face, he sends it, I think, in the uh, the Old Testament uh, copy maker. He sends a copy of it right away, like the Old Testament fax machine, to the choir master. That's the very first thing it says. To the choir master, a psalm of David. And then it says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now we're keying in on the phrase, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? And if you weren't here last week, we made the case, I think rather well, by the way, the biblical case. That, that hide your face from me is sort of the Old Testament uh, way of talking about the presence of God. The face of God is, is sort of the synonym to the presence of God. In fact, the two words are, are united. And so what David's doing is he's calling out for God to restore this sense of felt presence. And he's doing it. This is, this is sort of the sermon on how we talk about practically how to seek that. One of the sermons will talk about how practically to seek that. And I'm going to just walk you through in this psalm the ways that he goes about seeking the presence of God. And the first point is this. He seeks God's presence with urgency, right? He seeks God's presence with urgency. Four times in the first two verses, he says what? How long? How long? How long? How long? I encourage you sometime in, the, in, your, in your weekly conversation with just a random person, just say the same thing four times in a row. And just see kind of like how people respond. There is a lot of emphasis here to say over and over again to the Lord, how long? He, he wants this to change right away. 
This is so important to David, in fact, that he enters into a little bit of heresy. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? There's an imprecision to his language here. David's not being that theologically precise. Spurgeon says of this line, ah, David, you're talking like a fool. Spurgeon also said in this psalm, it seems that David's heart was more out of tune than his harp. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's cute. Uh, but, but I think we can forgive and understand David's theological imprecision because it's actually, I think, evidence of a really good theology. Here's, let, me say, let, me get, let, me get, let me say this again. I think the fact that David is over-exaggerating and saying, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? When the truth is, God doesn't forget him, hasn't forgot him, won't forget him. It's a completely false category. I think in some level, David's use of that very imprecise language shows that his theology is really sound. And, and here's why. Because he really misses God. Friends, I, I want to be so careful that we are not self-impressed by having good theology and think of that as enough and as a substitute for an experience with God. Right? Like, I believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God. And in, 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 in a few weeks, probably more than a few weeks, we're going to have a sermon on, on prayer and one of the things I've noticed is, is that it's really great that I believe intellectually in the sovereignty of God. And, and it's really great that I have these, these five points of soteriology called TULIP, which I, which I see, you know, God's, God's leadership in salvation and so on and so forth. That's really great. And yet there's a person down the street in another church who doesn't believe any of that, who's praying all the time for the Lord to help him. And I look and say, well, who really believes in the sovereignty of God? Right? Who, who actually believes it? The one who checks off a bunch of theological boxes or the one who is constantly pleading for the Lord? And I, I just don't want us to get to the point where we say, well, we've, we've arrived. We know what we're supposed to know. Therefore, we've arrived because the Bible says that there's something that we need to know about God that surpasses knowledge. And David's just crying out and he's being very imprecise in it. And he's saying, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Will you forget me forever? And it's completely not a proper theological category, and yet it shows great theology. He's desperate. He feels this sense of sorrow. He misses God. He says, how long will I take counsel in my soul and feel sorrowful all the day long? The word for sorrow there is grief. David's going throughout his day just missing the sense of the presence of God. He feels sleepy. He says, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's talking about this sense in which he's growing progressively weaker. He's sort of fading. The fire inside of him isn't burning anymore. He feels shaky. He says that, uh, he says that lest my foes rejoice, lest I am shaken. The, David talks about his legs a lot, actually, in Scripture. Not a lot, but, but he's proud of his legs. He's like, with God, I can leap over a wall. In Psalm 119, he's like, uh, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And here he's saying, I don't feel like I've got anything under me. Because without the felt presence of God, I'm just not right. David is saying, this is no way to live, God. 
This is no way to live. Last week I said that it is dangerous to go too long without experiencing the presence of God because we become internally anemic and externally vulnerable. And you know what's interesting about both those states, being externally vulnerable and internally anemic? You don't notice it. It's progressive. It it just kind of sneaks up on you. And sick becomes the new healthy. Let me tell you one way that we become more vulnerable to the enemy without the manifest presence of God. God's presence is meant to establish for us a baseline of glory and joy and goodness and truth and beauty. It's meant to create a baseline. Sort of, We were talking about how hard it is to know where you are in this area because in other areas that we've lived, there's a river and you know where the river is and you kind of feel this sense of the I know there's a river here, but it's not as dominant in this part of the city or other people have talked about how they lived in a place where there are mountains and you always know where you are in relationship to these mountains. Friends, the longer we go without experiencing the manifest presence of God, the more susceptible we become to seeing things that aren't really that great and aren't really that important and aren't really that wonderful as more wonderful and great and important as they are because we lose all sense of perspective the enemy sneaks in and begins to offer us substitutes for God. And because the real thing is a distant memory in our experience, those things seem better and more helpful and more promising than they actually are. This is just one of the ways we become more vulnerable to our enemy when we lack the manifest experience, presence of God. So David is leveraging this in his prayers. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So I told you first, if we're going to seek the presence of God, we should do it with urgency. And the second point is just this, connect God's glory with our need, connect God's glory with our need. David knows that without God's presence, he will fall prey to his enemy. And he also knows that if he fell prey to his enemy, God would not be glorified. You see how David intertwines his need with God's glory? Spurgeon writes this, It is not the Lord's will that the great enemy of our souls should overcome his children. This would dishonor God and cause the evil one to boast. This is, I love this sentence. It is well for us that our salvation and God's honor are so intimately connected that they stand or fall together. It is well for us that our salvation and God's honor are so intimately connected that they stand or fall together. Do you know how to ask God for something with, with boldness and assurance and confidence? Ask God to glorify his name. And guess what? God has connected our salvation with his glory so that he will intervene on our behalf to protect us from our enemies in the way that he sees fit because he is committed to glorifying his name. And so what David's doing here is he's saying, God, you promised to glorify yourself. And God, you promised to take care of me. And those two things are interconnected. And so I'm calling out to you, I'm saying, intercede in my life, return your presence, your manifest presence to me because I am exceedingly vulnerable. And if you don't do it, I will fall to my enemies, to your enemies. 
So we call out to God with urgency because we really, really, really do need God's manifest presence in our church and in our lives. And we call out to God with a sense of, listen, if you don't do this for us, we will fall. We will fall. It's only a matter of time. And you know, if we could just get to the point as a group of people, everybody I'm looking at this morning, if we could all get to the point where we really believed those two things and felt those two things and stepped into every Sunday morning together crying out to God for those two things, boy, I'll tell you. I'll talk more about that next week. So we cry out to God because of his for his manifest presence because we need it desperately. And he's imprecise. David is imprecise because he's desperate, because he's under attack, he's vulnerable. But I think there's a strong case to be made that his imprecision is also due to the fact that he's approaching God as a father. You know, children don't strain to find the perfect word when they're telling their dad they need something. I was with uh, Noah and his boys this week, and, and, and Bryce, poor Bryce, you know, you have to decode Bryce. Like, you have to know what he's saying. And, and, I, and I'm always impressed when parents can decode their children because I have no idea what's happening. But isn't that exactly what God promises in Romans 8? Right? That, that there are some times when we have needs and groanings too deep for words and that we should just trust in the Father's heart to interpret what's going on and to give us what we need. I say all of this so far because I want to free you up from being overly concerned about very precise categories in establishing simply this, Lord, we need more of you. Does that sound biblical to you? Right? And do we really need, in every instance, I, I'm all for theological precision, but do we need in every instance to go there first when as children we should go to the Father and say, <laughs> I need you. I don't even know what I I don't even know how to say this. I don't know how to ask for it, but I'm asking in urgency that the quality of my relationship with you isn't what I need it to be in order to live the life you've called me to live. I to say that with urgency but also a sense of God's fatherhood. You see, that's what I think is happening in this psalm, really. I think David is confident in the Lord's fatherhood. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. The Old Testament doesn't refer to God as father all that much, about 14 times, give or take. That's really something that Jesus develops, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But although the Old Testament doesn't often refer to God as a father, it routinely refers to God's fatherly love. It just doesn't use the word father. And I, I, want, to, I want to be clear on Father's Day to give you men the, 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 the simple version of what it means to be a good dad. We get this directly from God. Be strong and be loving. There you go. Be strong and be loving. And be strong in your love and loving in your strength. Let those two qualities intertwine 
in your relationship with your kids, and they will be blessed. Be strong, be loving. Be strong in your love and loving in your strength. Over and over again, we see those two qualities being knit together to form this phrase we see consistently in the Psalms, steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord is this sense of God's strength and faithfulness and capabilities united with his emotional intention for the good of his children. It's the sense of God being willing and able to love you, of being able and willing to love you. So what David is saying is he is as he's, as he's really not happy with the quality of his experience with God and he's crying out for God to give him a sense of his manifest presence, what David is saying is, pivot point for me is that I trust in God's willingness to love me and his ability to love me. I trust in the fatherhood of God. What do you, what do you know about the fatherhood of God? How, how recently have you thought about the fatherhood of God? I think it's one of those truths we very quickly forget to think about. I think it's one of those truths we very quickly allow to pass in our rearview mirror as something very simple and assumed. So let me give you just five facts about the fatherhood of God. Let me go through a little mini sermon within this talking about the fatherhood of God. First of all, God is the perfect father. God isn't like a father. Fathers are like God. God is the perfect father. Acts 17 says that God made the world and everything in it. And he gave to mankind life and breath and everything. He determined allotted periods and boundaries for where they would live. Acts 17 says we are indeed his offspring. So the first fact about the fatherhood of God is that God is the perfect father. The second one is this. That's why sin is so foul. Sin is so foul because of the fatherhood of God. God is not an anonymous cold force. We are not sinning against an anonymous kind of idea. We're sinning against the being who exudes, who is the epitome of strength and love. We're sinning against a person. We're sinning against someone who is the perfect father. The fatherhood of God is why sin, one reason why sin is so foul. Number three, sin makes us orphans. The basic problem with sin is that it severs our connection to God's fatherhood. You know, we're so used to fathers abandoning children. But there was a time not that long ago when children abandoned fathers. There was a time, and it still happens to this day. We're so used to the deadbeat dad stuff in the news and so on and so forth that we've completely forgotten about another theological category, and that is simply children leaving their fathers. And in Genesis, we see just that. We see the original sin and every sin afterward essentially be a looking at the father in the face and saying, I don't need your fatherhood. I don't want it. I want to be my own man. I want to be my own. Sin breaks, severs the fatherhood of God. You know, this week I was just thinking about people that we've counseled over the years and just, I'm just thinking about fatherhood and, you know, these two words came to my mind, creator and father. And I thought there should never be any gap between those two words. And every time there is gap between those two words, there's pain. 
You know, when we, when we have to have different words to designate like, well, he was my biological father or baby daddy, you know. And what we're saying essentially is like, this is the person who created me. But we have to use special designations because it's not the person who raised me. If that's your story, there's a gap between creator and father. There's pain in that gap. You know that all too well. And that echoes all the way back to Eden. When through sin, we created a gap between our creator and our father. Friends, you could never sever your relationship to God as creator. That's just a fact. He created you. But in your sin, you can sever the relationship between God as your God, with God as your father. And that's what makes sin so hard. It severs the, the greatest blessing in this world of having God as our father. So sin destroys that family relationship with God. Number four, Jesus came to reconcile us back to the father. Like I said before, there are all, there's only about 14 instances in the Old Testament where God's referred to as father. And then Jesus shows up and it's just father this and father that. Like he is, he revolutionizes the, the way that we address God. Why does Jesus enter the scene and suddenly use the word father constantly to refer to Yahweh? It's because he's right with God. It's because his relationship hasn't been severed. He's, he's, he's father. He's perfectly in relationship with God. That's what Jesus came to offer. And that's, that's number five. The father pays a dear price to reconcile us. Jesus did not come to flaunt his perfect relationship with the father. He came to give us a perfect relationship with the father. Romans five says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, what? Reconciliation. Jesus came as the only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would be made right with the Father. Sin destroys that important link to your creator. It creates a painful gap between those two names. But Jesus comes back and offers us reconciliation. And he does that by offering himself. Hebrews says that through Jesus' suffering, he brought many sons to glory. He brought many sons to glory. We are adopted back into the fatherhood of God through Jesus' precious work on the cross. Now, why is that all connected to the presence of God? Well, I've given you five facts about the fatherhood of God. Let me give you five benefits real quickly of being God's child. Another little mini sermon within a sermon. Five benefits of being God's child. The first one is access. When you are a child of God, when the creator is also your father, you have access to God. Jesus teaches us to pray in a whole new way. He says, when you pray, say what? Our Father who art in heaven. A second benefit of being a child of God is that you have fatherly compassion from God. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Your whole relationship with the creator of the universe changes 
and suddenly you have access to him. And then he looks at you with compassion as a father looks on his child. The third benefit of being a child of God is generosity. Victor read this in the call to worship. I'm going to read it again. This is fundamental to seeking the presence of God. It's fundamental to Father's Day. The two things just happen to work out quite well together. Luke 11 says this, So I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Jesus is saying this. Seek and you will find. By the way, Jesus' mission is to reconcile us, to give us a father again, right? Can you imagine the delight in his heart when he's saying this to his disciples? And he knows that he's going to pay for this to be true with his death. He gets to tell human beings who were once fallen and severed from their fatherly relationship with the creator this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you, if, he, if the son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the third benefit of being a child of God, you've got access, you've got God's compassion, you've got God's generosity. Fourth benefit is you've got a family. You know, these, these familial holidays, I guess every, most all holidays are familial, except for like Arbor Day. Most, 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 most holidays remind us of family. These aren't, these aren't great times for everybody, right? A day like Father's Day can, can actually be a hard day for a lot of people. A, a, a day like Christmas can be a hard day for people. It can, it can make you feel lonely. Let me tell you something. One of my favorite verses not only that's in the Bible that I've seen God do over and over again is found in Psalm 68 where it says, he sets the lonely in families. He sets the lonely in families. If you're lonely, God has adopted you. God wants to adopt you through Jesus if he hasn't already. And he wants to bring you into a family of God. You know, the other side of that verse, by the way, says this, God sets the lonely in families, but the rebellious live in a sun-soaked or sun-scorched land. Again, those who have been reconciled are at the table with dad. And those who rebel wander the wilderness like Cain in a sun-scorched land. The fifth benefit, this is a great one, is childlike worship. John's, John's uh, uh, introduction to the, the verse he read was perfect. This is all about this, this fifth idea of childlike worship. The fifth benefit of being God's child is that you get to glorify him by being needy. You get to glorify him by asking him for things. You get to show his fatherly strength and fatherly love by depending on him. You get to show the worth of the mountain stream by drinking of the mountain stream. And you get to show the glory of God by calling out to God and asking him for the things that are the most important. And he will show himself to be a good father when we call out to him and say, give us more of your Holy Spirit. Give us more of your presence. Help us to know your presence more clearly. Let's look back at verse 5. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He's trusting in this inclination of the father to love and the ability of the father 
to love. I will sing to the Lord because he's bountifully with me. This is the third point. First point is ask God with urgency. The second one is, is connect uh, our glory, his glory and our salvation. Third point is rely on the fatherhood of God. This is the fourth point. And that's just this. Remember when you can't rejoice. Remember when you can't rejoice. Here's what I mean. If you'll notice the tenses in verse 5, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see the tenses? Past tense, future tense. I have trusted. I will rejoice. I will sing because he dealt bountifully with me. Future past, future past. Here's the thing. I can't make my heart rejoice, but I can make my heart remember. We're talking now about how to seek the presence of God. And sometimes the affections aren't there. What do you do then? Well, when I can't rejoice, I can at least remember. I can at least look back and see God's faithfulness to me in the past. And friends, we talk about the gospel a lot because it is a transforming effect in all sorts of areas of your life. But in this moment, as we are seeking the presence of God, one of the fundamental questions we have to ask is, does he really love me? Will he really do this for me? Will he really overlook? Will he really forgive me? Will he really be my father? There's no better place to go than to your conversion if the Lord saved you, then you know one simple fact. Listen, friends, this is so important. I, I think some of you just need to let this soak into your cells. God did not save you to merely tolerate you. He saved you. That is to say, He bought you with the precious blood of His only begotten Son to be with you to spend time with you. He saved you to spend eternity with you. Friends, God was willing to move heaven and earth to be with you. And when you ask him, when we ask him together for a clearer sense of his presence, we can have confidence that if he ripped us out of the grave and gave us life, so that we could be with him. This prayer, this ask, is well within his ability and his intention. So we seek the presence of God because we know if we're in Christ, God has moved heaven and earth to reconcile us with himself, to bring us into his presence. Now I want to get ultra practical for a minute. Look what David says in verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Here's a really important tip, pro tip for you. God has actually given us a handful of tools that we're supposed to use to pursue his presence. Sometimes you may have heard these called means of grace. 
And the idea is that God's given us these practical things that we can do to seek his presence. And singing is one of the tools that God has given us. And over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about, I think, most of the tools. I'll probably forget one or miss one, but uh, most of the tools that God's given us to seek his presence. We, we can't make it all happen, but he's given us tools to seek him. You know, I used to be quite the outdoorsman uh, back in the day, back when I could sleep on the ground. And one of the essential skills... Well, I mean, probably the essential skill, right, is to learn how to start a fire. And just like every other kid before me and every other kid after me, I've made the same mistake as I was learning how to start a fire. And guys, if you know how to start a fire, you know this mistake well. You grab the big stuff and you think it's just going to magically light on its own. Every kid makes a mistake of overlooking the small stuff. And without the small stuff, you can't build the fire. And every kid gets impatient and wants to skip gathering all the small things that you need to catch that spark, to start that fire. But that's really the only way, short of, you know, a 50-gallon drum of kerosene. It's the only way. I've done that too. It's the only way. My eyebrows have grown back. The only way you can actually start a fire is to spend a lot of time on the small stuff. And friends, that's really the way life works. As we're seeking this thing that honestly is the most important thing, we, we need to experience the presence of God. We, I, I don't know many other priorities that would overcome this one in my life. I, I don't think there are any. Because this would inform every other area of my life. As I'm seeking this, as I want this to happen, it is going to be very easy for me to neglect the small stuff. It's going to be very easy to get this dream in my head of this wonderful thing that could happen and forget to realize that in almost every good thing in my life, it's happened because I connected and brought together a bunch of very small, seemingly meaningless things and brought them together. And those are the things that caught the spark. Those are the things that really, honestly, built the fire. The Christian life is not a job, but it is full of duties. Duties that lead to delight. Duties that should start in this sort of, I really, really want God. And if I can sing or come to church or, or serve or care for my neighbor and see those things turn into a way that God delivers this thing that I long for, I will happily gather all the small things together so that God can light the fire. When David says, I will sing to the Lord, I think he's starting to gather the tender. I think he's choosing to engage in behaviors that he knows will predictably lead to the thing that he's seeking. Though he can't flip the switch... I think he knows there are means, there are methods, there are things that we can do to gather the tender. And I think singing for David and for you and for me is one of those things. So he's beginning to seek the means. Two other things really quickly before we close. He's corporatizing his prayer. I'm convinced, and we'll explain this in the weeks to come, 
that seeking the presence of God is a team sport. I'm convinced that God will actually is calling us to seek his presence together. We'll talk about that more next week. And finally, most importantly, he views this as a season, and I can't say this enough. David views this absence of God's presence as a season, as, as a thing that will end. He says, how long, how long, how long, how long? Because he knows this can't go on forever. It won't. Let me just tell you point blank, it won't. It won't go on forever. This, this dry spell in your life won't go on forever. This dry spell in this church, if, if you think there is one, won't go on forever. God always blesses his people when they seek him in this way. God will meet us. He will meet us. And, and he will do that because we can't survive without it. And it is God's will that the church survive. And it's God's will that you continue. So he will do this. Because he's a good father. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out to you. Please just even now begin to stir in our hearts a spirit of unity. As we take a step together toward you calling out right now, Lord, together that we need you, Lord. We, we need more of you. Stir us up from our complacency. Stir us up from any, any sense of fear. Lord, through Jesus, you, you, you've done everything necessary to bring us into your presence. You've done everything necessary to be our Father. So we call out to you right now, according to your word in Luke 11, we ask you, Lord, that you would bless our church with more of a sense of your presence when we gather together. Please, Lord, bless us with that. We know, God, that if if you will be with us present, and God, you made us the way we are. We're human beings. We we need you to to reveal yourself to us in, in all sorts of ways. Lord, we know that as you do that, that that will never be. That that doesn't get, get ingrown. That doesn't become stagnant. That always overflows into the nations. That always overflows into the city, into our neighborhoods. And so we don't seek this in sort of a navel-gazing way or a way to become further ingrown. We seek this for the exact opposite reason, to give vitality and power to our witness in the world. Please, Lord, bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, the Lord's table is offered up to us as God's extension of, I'm with you. I love you. I've, paid every, I've done everything I need to bring you to myself. I feel like I've introduced the table throughout this message because essentially there's nothing more intimate than to ask somebody over for dinner. There's nothing more intimate to say, I, I want you with me. I want you near me. I want you to be with me. And that's what God's doing. He's inviting us to his table his feast and it's a feast made possible by jesus if you have placed your faith in jesus and believe that through his work you've been reconciled to the father so there's no more gap between creator and father that they're the t- together and i encourage you to participate in the lord's table with us today come